people ask me, why do you talk about sex, Lisa? Like, as if I must be some, you know, hypersexual nymphomaniac, like sex witch. And actually, <laughs> I'm just witch. a normal. Like <laughs> and not that there's, a, 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 you know, more power to the sex witches. Uh, absolutely. It gives me such pleasure to introduce you to Lisa Mangaldas, one of India's most powerful voices talking about sex, sexuality, and sexual health. I loved chatting with Lisa. I loved her obvious passion for what she does. She was such a joy to interview for the podcast, not holding anything back. We talked about serious topics and still had a laugh. As an Indian woman talking about topics like female masturbation, female pleasure, and even abortion rights, her work is truly groundbreaking. Lisa has a massive following on YouTube and Instagram and she aims to normalize conversations around sex. From consent to contraception, from masturbation to women's orgasms, Lisa talks about everything. She was named one of GQ's 25 most influential young Indians in 2021. And you'll hear exactly why when you listen to this interview. Sharam, but the me, chi chi. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is The Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Hello and welcome to Masala Podcast. Um, Lisa Mangaldas is the most awesome woman I've heard about recently on my trip to India. She talks about sex and sexuality and female pleasure and orgasm and all things we should all be talking about more about. Lisa, welcome to Masala Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Sangeeta. Uh, let's start by telling me a little bit about your journey. What brings you to this place where you talk about female sexuality quite as much? Uh, as a young person sort of navigating my own sexuality and my own body and my own pleasure, I just felt that there was such a lack of resources as a young Indian woman, resources specially contextualized for India. You know, you can maybe Google things and find some articles uh, from other countries, but nobody talks about this stuff here. And four years ago when I started, even fewer people were talking. You know, this was pre-Me Too. This was pre... I feel like we're having a moment as women in terms of feeling empowered to, to share our stories. And I love that. But I felt when I started much more alone than I do now. And I felt... Like I need to to create that thing that I'm looking for because, you know, we need it. If I need it, I'm sure there are hundreds of other women who, who want this. And I think you too felt that same sort of sense. And uh, as, as just, you know, someone having their first sexual experiences or trying to reject this idea that you can only have one partner and get married to that person and then have sex, you know, I knew that wasn't for me. <laughs> but in the meantime, I also wanted to... I, you know, understand things like what the best contraception might be for me or, you know, how I can figure out what makes me orgasm or, or, you know, where can I buy a sex toy or, I mean, any number of questions about everything ranging from pleasure in bed to sexual health just seemed like these were questions women can't ask. And so I wanted to create this safe space for for conversation you know i don't i don't posit myself as an expert or a doctor i try and consult people who are 
to ensure that the information I'm providing is credible. Um, I'm very, very keen for it to be scientifically accurate because there's also so much out there that's just plain nonsense that's spouted as if it's sound life advice or medical advice, you know, whether it's an older relative or a, or even a, a quack who calls themselves a doctor. People believe all kinds of bizarre things about their bodies, especially in the context of sex. And so I wanted to make sure that I could in, ensure my information is always scientifically accurate. That was a huge priority for me as well. Why do you think... Um this work is important. What have you found in kind of your, you know, interactions with the people, the massive audience that follows you? What are the things that you think they really need help with? I think on a very basic level, you know, in India, young people are kind of taught to think of sex as this isolated activity that happens in a dark room, ideally only with somebody you're married to, somebody from the same caste, class, religion, blah, blah. And as if it's just this one thing, like this small part of your life that doesn't really matter, that we shouldn't talk about and you shouldn't bother with until you're married. When actually, maybe perhaps sex is an act, but your sexuality is like a very fundamental part of your personhood, even if you've never had sex. It's about how you see yourself. It's going to impact how you interact with the world and even just how sort of at peace you are with yourself. And so the fact that young people aren't even allowed to sort of openly explore that facet of their personalities. It's almost as if it doesn't exist. Nobody acknowledges these. This is great big dark this secret that we all carry. And it's not even a carry. dark thing, right? It can yeah, be actually yeah. a very bright thing. It is, it but we're told. A, but we're told, we're told. I mean, most people haven't even, you know, many people ask me, why do you talk about sex, Lisa? Like, as if I must be some, you know, hypersexual nymphomaniac, like sex witched. And actually, I'm sex just witch. a normal, like and not that there's, a, I, I, you, you know, know more not, power to the sex witches. Uh, absolutely. But I mean that simply talking about sex seems like this weird, kinky thing to do in India, you know, as if having an interest in sex even is something absurd or like, you know, a little bit strange to people because they're not allowed to even think about this stuff. Not everybody, of course. I mean, we have a rich erotic history. We should, uh, in fact, celebrate that more. But I think particularly contemporary India and young people in today's India, by and large, um, sort of, um, it's a don't ask, don't tell part of their life, you know? And it's not something they're allowed to celebrate. I, so few people are able to be out to their families if they don't conform to the cis-hetero, you know, very binary view of things. And I mean, people are often forced to marry people they haven't chosen. That whole, that's all very much still part of the social fabric, right? And so I really wanted to provide a space to normalize choices outside of that because people are making those choices. And why, why would you have to do it in secrecy? Why lie to the people you love the most? You know, so many of my friends have double lives where they're this, that they do, or they pretend that their life is one way for their family, and then actually they're doing other things. But those other things aren't bad or wrong. So exactly, you know, why can't you just be yourself, yeah, yeah. minus the shame and judgment from those closest to you? Those were the things I was keen on trying to slowly help change. That absolutely resonates with me so much. It's like this beautiful natural part of us somehow becomes deviant. Exactly. Within the culture. And that's so messed up. It's so messed up. And I feel like for women, uh, it becomes an even bigger sort of sort of thing because, you know, there's the player-slut dichotomy where men, it's sort of like boys will be boys or I think there's less um, nosiness when it comes to men's lives. So they're just, it's still don't ask, don't tell, but they're kind of, there's an unsaid uh, free pass 
But for women, it's like, you know, it feels transgressive to even uh, admit that you enjoy sex. Exactly. Right? Like it's something you shouldn't, that is not actually for your enjoyment. This is your marital duty. You just you lie know? back and Yeah, you're of... a baby machine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and um, orgasms. You were born to make babies, not yeah. have orgasms. You know? <laughs> so I feel like even to to just feel like you're entitled to pleasure as a woman is 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 a bit of a journey. Otherwise, you kind of deprioritize your own pleasure in favor of his pleasure. Um, you know, I feel like we're not even taught about our own anatomy. When you put a diagram of the clitoris, including the internal clitoris, most people are like, what is this? Is this a, an orchid? Is it a, a butterfly? Like, what is this shape? You know, imagine if we put diagrams of the penis out there and men didn't know what it was. That's how fundamental the clitoris is to sexual pleasure for women, right? It's analogous to the penis. The vagina is actually not the analog to the penis. Uh, and most people don't even realize, you know, that like you don't menstruate from the same hole that you pee from. I mean, basic stuff about anatomy, which in 2021 should just be taught the way we learn about any other part of our body, uh, is still mysterious to women, let alone men. I mean, if we can't label a clitoris, how is a clueless man going to be able to <laughs> make you orgasm, you know? So these were things I, I wanted to try and just bring more out into the open. I think it's really, really important work what you do. I wondered if you could share perhaps some of the stories that you hear from your audience in terms of what this lack of sexual knowledge, or not, you know, any lack of knowledge about sexuality or body, what, what does that mean in people's lives? I think that um, there's a sort of practical or physical uh, ramification to that lack of knowledge, as well as a more emotional or intellectual ramification. I think there's a lot of shame. I mean, people feel ashamed of masturbating, ashamed of, you know, watching porn, ashamed of these fairly sort of regular, normal parts of human sexual discovery or human sexuality, you know, as if masturbating is something that could potentially um, I don't know, impact your marital marital prospects or like you, people are also quite religious, I think, by and large. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, ideas of morality around like, will I be punished for this? Will I go blind? Will God, you know, things like that. And so I feel like on a very basic level, um, there's a sense of discomfort or a sort of tension between the natural human sexual tendencies or, or you know, curiosities and, and then letting yourself explore those because you have been told for so long that it's bad and wrong. And then on the other hand, on a practical level, like because of this shame, people aren't, you know, uh, using contraception as much as they should because they feel ashamed even going to the chemist to buy it. Or the ideas of masculinity make them think that like it is more masculine to have sex without a condom. You know, you, they think that they're doing the woman a favor by using a condom or something, not realizing like... The woman could have an STD. You're also protecting yourself, you know. <laughs> exactly. You're not doing anyone <laughs> exactly. any favors. So I think that the misinformation and the prevailing sort of attitudes that are very judgment and shame oriented do get in the way of people's lives in in these two ways. One in the in their own attitudes to their own sexuality, as well as in the ability to have safe, consensual, pleasurable sex. And what about emotionally? How does that translate? I'm particularly interested um, in hearing about women, you know, because 
when we grow up in this culture that tells us, you know, sex isn't for us, it's for men, then the whole journey of perhaps experiencing pleasure becomes really complicated. And asking for pleasure is a whole other, you know, it's unthinkable, I think, for most Indian women. So have you had any kind of um, feedback or stories from the female members in your, or those who identify as female in your audience that resonated with you? I think that India's women are one of the most potent forces of change right now. Like I'm just so um, delighted every time I meet a woman just being who she wants to be. And when you just look at the evolution in terms of what women can do today versus what our grandmas could do, it's it's pretty amazing. You know, I could be on Tinder. I could have like a new date every evening, decide which one I want to or not want to or never. I mean, you know, it's up. I have much more choice, perhaps. Many don't. But in general, I would say the evolution you see uh, as far as India's women go from two generations ago is vast. When you look at men, I mean, I don't think my brother's opportunities are vastly different from my grandfather's, you know. And I think you're feeling that tension between the genders as well, where men aren't sure what to do with these newly empowered, you know, financially independent, sexually liberated and, and sort of more and more feminist female consciousnesses. Um, and I think that on the one hand, while we all want to embrace some of these um, more sort of progressive and liberal and uh, gender equal ways, it's also hard to resist the conditioning, right? So you, it's hard, I feel, as an Indian woman to not feel like you're going to be slut shamed if you're having casual sex or if you have had multiple partners or if you're even just dressed a certain way. You're kind of almost expecting that you will be seen. You might even see other women that way. I mean, internalized misogyny is a thing. And I think we'd be lying if we'd say that we've never judged another woman because of how, you know, skimpy her bikini was or how she talked to men or whatever it is. It's hard to, you have to unlearn this conditioning, right? Um, Because you too have been subject to it. Uh, and I think that while on the one hand, uh, uh, perhaps we're having more and freer experiences in our romantic lives, there's still that sense of like, as a good Indian girl, you should only sleep with a guy who ha- is making a commitment to you, you know, because you're necessarily the losing party in a sexual experience as a woman. You're giving something and he is taking, you know, we're not re- yet there where we see it as a totally gender equal experience where you could be enjoying it as much as he is and perhaps you don't even want commitment you know we always see like the woman as the loser somehow (laughs) in a sexual experience that does not translate into a commitment of some sort and so I think even as and perhaps you know historically that's because we didn't have contraception so the stakes were higher you don't really want to be pregnant with you know after every sexual experience or like stuck with having to raise a child without a co-parent but we've we're in 2021 where that is not the case anymore right you can have this fantastic contraception sex can be had just for pleasure and frankly it shouldn't matter whether you're male or female in terms of how you're judged for having participated in that experience so I feel like we still have so much to deal with even in our own um sort of negotiation of these new found freedoms you know sometimes there's like unlearning to do just to be able to enjoy them absolutely and I think what is really heartening from hearing you speak is the journey we've done in a couple of generations absolutely spot on you know our grandmothers were married off and we're on tinder 
might be looking for casual sex or whatever, you know, but that's a, you know, a lot of growth. And I don't think maybe feminists in other parts of the world have experienced, I think, what Indian women have. So it's a huge jump, but, you know, and also we carry the conditioning because there's that voice in our head, you know, our mother's voice or our own to say, oh my God, you're sleeping with this guy, you know, whatever. So I, I absolutely, I think they're wonderful points that you've made there. And the other really interesting aspect of your work that I thought was how you've um, taken this conversation about sex and sexuality into Hindi and you're doing all of these videos on YouTube. And I think that's so important because in India, there's this, you know, there's a whole class of people who grew up speaking English and they have access to a lot of information. And then there are people who don't. And I think the work you do in that is really, really powerful. Could you tell me a little bit about why you started doing that? Of course. No, thank you for, for saying that. I think for me, it was very important that my content be accessible. And I realized that even though my own abilities with Hindi aren't fantastic, I was, uh, I mean, the content would have been excluding a lot of people by being solely in English. You know, we are, after all, a country with many, many languages. I think even Hindi isn't enough, but at least it's a first step. So it's been a huge amount of work for me to feel confident enough speaking Hindi because I, I grew up in Goa and in Bangalore and in Kodaikanal and then went to school in the States. So I never spoke it much you know it, it was sort of just something I learned in school and to talk about sex even in English is, is tricky so let alone Hindi I was very scared actually to you also open yourself out to more criticism when you reach more people and you open yourself out to more people who don't share your views because they haven't shared the privileges of your education or etc 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 you know and uh, I and so I was wary of that but I, I knew I had to do it though and so I finally did it this year started making content in Hindi and I, and my uh, my audience that has sort of evolved with me knows that my Hindi isn't my first, my, the best, you know, I'm not that great at it, but they're very uh, accepting of it because they just agree that it needs to simply be understood. I'm not being a poet over here, you know, I'm giving uh, information that's just basic, factually accurate, scientifically accurate information everyone should know. So not judging me on my accent or my vocabulary as long as it, I'm making myself understood. And I think um, it's also, I mean, the reach of that Hindi content has been, you know, 10x the reach of my English content. So I realize even though it's tempting to inhabit your own little bubble where your dinner table guests are your audience, actually there's a whole world out there who would skip your video because it is not understandable to them. It it's might not as well speaking be in, in their Chinese, language. You know? Yes. To an Indian person who's, who did not grow up reading and writing English, it's it's alienating almost. So so I'm glad that at least, I mean, it's a start. I wish I could do more languages. <laughs> but I think it's been really uh, a huge sort of a game changer for my content in a way, in terms of its reach. Absolutely. And I think what you mentioned earlier about privilege, you know, if we grew up in India, you go to an English-speaking school and all your friends speaking in English and you work in English, you inhabit that little bubble and you forget that the majority of the country isn't in that bubble. And they have as much of a right to knowledge about sex and information around sexuality as anybody else. So I think that's really important. I was really impressed with that, I think, when I was looking at your work. Thank you. Yeah, I think with sex specifically, it's such a democratic part of life, right? Whether you're the richest person in the country or the poorest, your anatomy is going to be roughly the same. Your 
you know your 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 right to pleasure is the is the same and i feel like so much of the conversations around sexual health the, whether it's the problem or the solution or the a discussion on contraception or whatever it is the answers remain the same you know it it's it's a human thing it isn't really about where you stand on the socioeconomic ladder so i feel like unlike other genres of content that might be more um target specific in the way they present themselves based on their audience this is stuff that's it's almost like public service announcements you know exactly <laughs> <laughs> so it's i really i did want this to this way to your clitoris yeah Please exactly keep right <laughs> exactly doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank yeah. or what car you drive exactly no i think it's wonderful what is hindi for vagina what is malayalam for breasts what's an orgasm in marathi i never knew because the language around sex wasn't the language that i was born speaking i only read about words like foreplay or clitoris in english the only sexual words i heard in hindi were derogatory words used to attack women words that made us flinch hide even deeper into our dupattas and our saris it wasn't just me this was pretty much the same for most women around me we had no language for sex that's because that language was considered shameful instead women were told to remember words like shame reputation modesty decency and honor um i wanted to ask you about some of the misconceptions around sex sex or body or sexuality that you've come across specifically with kind of things like the hymen or masturbation which you mentioned earlier have you come across kind of common things that people have misconceptions about for sure i think the nice thing about social media is that it allows people to reach out to you uh, and even when i'm not able to reply to all the messages i receive which is a lot of the time because the sheer volume is so overwhelming in a positive way i'm just so gra- grateful people feel like they can tell me this stuff but it's not humanly possible for me to always reply but i read them and i see so many people asking similar questions there's certainly certain topics that seem to be their most um the most frequently uh you know the the FAQs or the questions that the issues that seem to have the most myths surrounding them and uh, the hymen is certainly one of them i think um in fact there's so much sort of falsity around how people grow up thinking about the hymen that the truth is surprising to them whenever i talk about the fact that not all women bleed the first time they have sex uh you know that this whole idea of virginity and attaching it to this idea of an intact hymen is really problematic because it's actually a stretchy tissue that in most women only partially covers the opening and you know even from exercise or using tampons or anything like that you might oh, and, and some people's hymen is just stretchy enough that you never no it doesn't tear you don't you're not going to bleed 
at all. Whereas someone else might have a lot of blood. I mean, it doesn't, and it doesn't matter either way. But but the idea that some women don't bleed the first time they have sex seems like a lie to people, especially men. I've had men insult me for spreading this, you know, falsity. <laughs> yeah, why are you? <laughs> it's like you're the the slut whisperer, you know. <laughs> slut um, whisperer. <laughs> but people are so confounded by what is actually just. You know, Fact. sand, factual information yeah. because for generations they've been told that their wife's worth relies on that one night after the wedding and whether there's blood on the sheets or not. You know, women are killed for this, for not bleeding on their wedding night. And it, I mean, it boils my blood to, to hear the, those sorts of um, stories, but they still happen. And I think that we need to have more people saying this instead of just me. I hope that you know, I, I and I'm so excited every day when I see more women um, talking about their bodies openly or talking about sex openly and doctors. And I mean, the more people out there providing scientifically accurate information, the less hopefully the falsities will seem true. Because right now, people believe the lies. The truth is surprising. What is it like? to live in a fairly conservative country or the majority conservative country and be a woman who is talking about sex every day and talking about the clitoris and talking about female pleasure and orgasms. What's that like? Well, um, I think for the most part, people see the need for this. We're also the most populated country in the world. We are indeed. And, you know, which I'm means sh- we're having a lot, having a lot of, of sex. sex. <laughs> and I think people... You know, we're also a country that is still in terms of development up. I mean, while I wish there was more attention to sex, like most people don't even have enough food, you know, malnutrition is a huge problem. And I mean, there's so people don't have toilets, like our problems are so many. And even though there's been a lot of um, or con- a considerable amount of of progress there's a lot of work to be done and so i feel like in terms of political issues sex hasn't really become sufficiently political most people don't haven't really thought about their opinion on sex outside of don't talk about it or it's shameful you know if you are the i think like most indians haven't thought about their uh their uh, uh, they haven't intellectualized their stance on an issue like abortion or and multiple issues that have been more politicized in more developed countries which is Partly, I think, as I was saying, because there's too many other issues at hand and this is something we just don't talk about. But then there's also, I mean, what do you say to the fact that there's Kajuraho and the Kama Sutra and these came out of here, you know, for everybody who's trying to say in these contemporary custodians of English, in of, sorry, I'm so excited and I'm like tripping off all my words. (laughs) The contemporary custodians of Indian culture like to claim that it is against our culture. Sex is against our culture. But there's overwhelming evidence historically that sex is not against our culture. And so I think a lot of Indians are open to listening to somebody talk about sex because not enough people are talking about it. So they haven't fully, fully formed an opinion other than the default setting of shame. You know, it's not, they aren't like anti-abortion campaigners outside hospitals in India, unlike in the States or in other countries where it's a hot topic and it's legal here, you know, and you don't even need uh, somebody accompanying you if you're over 18. And most people don't even realize that. They just assume it's illegal here and 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 don't think about it. Um, so I feel like you have an opportunity here to try and shape people's attitudes to sex. First, help them uh, eliminate the shame or at least be open to talking about this with their kids, uh, with their spouse. I mean, at least your immediate family, right? If just, if only parents talk to their kids more openly about sex, I feel like 
half the problems <laughs> that we see in this arena <laughs> yes. would be resolved. You yes. know? And studies indicate that. I mean, parents who are open with their kids about sex and talk about sexual health, uh, it, it's proved that 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 makes the children less likely to risk it, to engage in risky sexual behavior. Um, so, so I think like even if these conversations start at home before, you know, we can implement sex ed in all schools and before there's institutional and, and sort of, um, really large scale change, they can, because change is incremental. It's rarely radical. I feel like if at least we start talking about it in our own families with our own husbands and wives and lovers and, you know, children and things like that, already there'd be considerable improvement i think in just how free we feel absolutely and i think a big part of what you do you change people's lives i think with this work you do because you. this is fundamental to human existence sex is is fundamental exactly. you know we, we you know like here. food water sex this is you know i wonder if you have any stories that you're happy to share obviously you don't need to mention people's names um if you've had any uh, conversations with people where they've told you, you know, thanks to you, we did this and this happened to us. Um, yeah, well, I am I'm very proud that many women have told me that they've had their first orgasm Yay! after, you know, uh, watching my videos about the clitoris or about my first vibrator or about women's orgasms and, you know, exploring. The, so proud of you, Lisa. Uh, idea <laughs> of, of just taking a look at your vulva with a mirror and figuring it all out. Like many, many women have even told me they didn't even really know what their clitoris was until after watching my videos and things like that. So it, it, I mean, I feel like we need to shout it from the rooftops and I can't take credit for, I didn't discover the clitoris myself. I've, you know, obviously read about it as well and look and navigated my own body and it's, it's knowledge that's out there. So I, I implore more people to talk about this stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, that's perhaps what I'm proudest of. If, if, if there are more women having orgasms in India, thanks to me, uh, that's something I'm happy to take, take, I mean, you know, I'll take it. Um, I think also though, what I'm really happy about is that interestingly, many women have discovered my content through a male, either a friend or, you know, boyfriend or something like that, or family member, like a brother or a cousin. And that is so interesting to me. And, and I think part of the reasons that 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 is the case that women are discovering my content via a man is because in India we're just getting to a point where women can openly buy sanitary napkins you know or talk about their periods we're not yet quite at that place where and of course I don't mean to generalize I'm sure there are enough Indian women who are seeking information about sex and the body and you know watching feminist porn and buying themselves vibrators but by and large I would say we're not quite there yet where that's considered a mainstream thing to do. You know, I hope we'd live in a world where vibrators are like toothbrushes. Everyone just has one. It isn't a kinky thing to have, but we're not there yet. And so I think oftentimes because men are in, you know, it's almost like there's a bro code, right? Where if, if, for men, if you're not interested in sex, there's something wrong with you. And for women, if you are interested in sex, there's something wrong with you. So men are more likely to search what is the G spot or, you know, does it exist? And, and, than, than women do. And maybe they're expecting some sort of pornograph. Maybe they're expecting to hit on some porn or something, but they stumble upon my videos and instead get a little lecture. But perhaps they stayed and listened to all of it and were like, oh my gosh, like the G-spot isn't actually a real, you know, Specific. organ in there. It's just a sort of region of lots of different things happening. Um, and it 
you know, different parts feel good for different women. I'm going to keep this in mind the next time I am fingering my girlfriend and I'll send her this video, you know. Um, so I feel like in a funny kind of way, men are playing a role in getting this content to more women, at least when it comes to my channel. I also think they're, um, I mean, I, I know it might not seem like this, but I think that actually men do want to please their female partners. You know, even though it can seem like they're selfish or clueless, or those are the stereotypes when women talk about sex on the internet. In fact, I think, at least in my experience and from what I hear from men on my comments and messages and stuff, they really do want to know as well what women like and how it feels good and what can I do to my girlfriend. And um, and so we should tell them. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm telling them <laughs> on your behalf, but feel free to tell them, you know. Absolutely. I feel like communication is so central. I mean, I, I get messages from married people talking about how they never, the lights are off and uh, they never feel, it's just still so awkward to talk about sex. Like, dear Lisa, I don't know how I could tell my husband what to do. It's just really awkward for me. I could not give him instruction. And sometimes he might as well be licking my elbow. Um, he doesn't know what he's doing, you know, but you have to have those conversations. And I think you'd be surprised at how receptive your partner might be if you're able to do so in a way that doesn't make them feel attacked, you know, in a compassionate way. Um, and also be open to, to hearing their um, feedback and direction a little bit as well. Any other women who've written to you with any other? Uh, I think masturbation also is a huge topic and not just from women, but even questions from men. Um, as I was saying earlier, just lots of myths around masturbation. And I think people, uh, the shame and judgment and stuff is so acute that you, people are worried if they're addicted to masturbation and addicted to porn, even if they, you know, watch porn or masturbate once in a week or once in a month. And I think sometimes... Um, because words are thrown around like porn addiction and the no fap movement and all of this stuff. And while perhaps compulsive sexual behavior is an issue for some people, there's also a ton of fear and shame that's being internalized to the extent that everything is being pathologized in one's own mind. You know, you just worry, am I a deviant? Am I like, is there something wrong with this actually quite normal behavior? Um, so I think, uh, you know, people aren't really, and it's a difficult thing to talk about but I think there's, there's, there's something very complex about sexuality, right? It is that space where you're allowed to fantasize about the things that you might not admit to fantasizing about on the dinner table. or it's so, And that's what makes it so intimate when you're consensually able to explore certain things with a partner where this is a judgment-free space and you what arouses you is something they're interested in navigating with you and you with them. But I feel like when there's that shame, so many of what, what are actually quite common... Um, scenarios that arouse people can seem somehow really deviant as yeah, we were saying yeah, earlier. Yeah. So I get a lot of questions about like, is there something wrong with me if I fantasize about, you know, scenarios around submission and control or exhibitionism or, you know, when these are actually yeah, very normal no, um, sort of role play scenarios and things. So yeah, I wish there was more available in Indian languages actually, because there's quite a lot of stuff out there on the internet in English yes. about these elements of life. But if you can't read and write English, you're finding almost yeah. nothing, you yeah. know? Um, and so I think it can be quite isolating for Indians who cannot find that information in a language they understand. These desires can seem, you know, problematic or, I don't know, somehow transgressive in, an, in a way that is potentially going to land them in some sort of punishment. Mm -hmm. 
Have you had any negative feedback or any negative pushback with the work you do at all? So, you know, luckily, I would say that it's been overwhelmingly positive and it is hard to disagree with what I'm saying quite often because it's just factually accurate. I mean, you can, there's enough evidence to confirm what I'm saying. It isn't opinion-driven content for the yeah, most part. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes... You do ruffle feathers. Um, I mean, I get called a slut all the time, but I, I, I feel like if if we're still thinking of, I've reclaimed the word for myself. I think many women have reclaimed the word. Absolutely. It's going to take more than calling me a slut to make me feel bad about myself. So yeah, Randy, Chup Randy, and things like that. I often hear because it's just, I guess, uh, a bit sort of new for some people to see an Indian woman talk openly about sex or her vibrator or her clitoris, like where this is not what girls are supposed to do, you know. But I think there's a lot of people who also are just like more power to you and who are starting to do it themselves because I'm doing it or because, and also globally, there's sex positivity is having a, mo a moment, which I'm so glad it is, you know. Uh, I, but, I, but sometimes it surprises me. Like I recently posted something about how gynecologists ought to treat their patients without judgment without shame because really what use is all of your training and your fantastic facilities if you're not able to treat a patient with dignity when they're at their most vulnerable and this is a, an issue in India. I Absolutely. mean I received hundreds of stories from women about their experiences at gynecologist offices where they never wanted to ever go back because they were shamed for having premarital sex or for wanting an abortion or for any and number of different And that's fairly common, issues. isn't it? Extremely common. Unfortunately, in India, it yeah. is a majority experience. And I understand that gynecologists are a product of the same society as everyone else's. But if you're choosing that as your profession, you also have a greater responsibility to question your biases and leave them at the door. Yeah. yeah. Right? You can't be bringing irrational or, you know, sort of like either misogynistic or irrational religious beliefs into your practice because that, you know, you chose this profession. I think you ought to do that work because what is the point then? All your years and incredible hard work as a medical student, what use is all of that if you're going to shame your patient? Is all I said. And I also said on the flip side, a gynecologist who creates a safe and judgment-free environment stands to be the most valuable resource in a woman's life. All these gynecologists came at me in the comments being like, how dare you, ins as a non-medic, you are insulting our profession. And if there was, you know, these are fringe experiences, you could have just talked about one gynecologist that you had a negative experience with. How can you blame all of us? And I was not even blaming. I said, if you, I'm not talking about the gynecologists that are not the problem, but it is a majority experience. You know, it's like Absolutely. the men's rights activists coming into comments on posts about feminism, being like, not all men, you know, and it's just like... <sighs> <laughs> you just realize how much work there is to be Absolutely. done. Absolutely. Um, where do you see the future for kind of the sex positivity space, if you will, in India, among Indian men and women? I think that it's a space that's definitely uh, untapped and people recognize that. I definitely think there will be more and more like sex tech and sexual wellness and um, even, you know, just as far as condom brands go, things like that, I, I can already see more and more that you're, there's more interest in products like menstrual cups, lubricants, vibrators, you know, the, uh, these were things that were not even available from one brand in India 15 or 20 years ago. And now you're seeing more and more players enter, you're seeing apps around 
uh, you know, sexual health queries or connecting people to healthcare practitioners. So I think all, and you know, there's Tinder and Bumble and whatever, Hinge, all sorts of dating apps. So I think as soon as um, an area of life becomes profitable, it suddenly becomes more respectable, right? Just like weed in the US. Now it's a thing that white people monopolize um, <laughs> and are investing in, are profiting off of, and suddenly it becomes a clean, cool thing, you know? Um, so I'm sure that'll happen slowly, slowly uh, in, in ways that make, I, I hope that the plus side will be that sex becomes more acceptable and to discuss, to open discussion and to, you know, pleasure becomes a more central part of that as we see more of our needs being publicly met by profitable companies. Um, but I also think that women, as I said earlier, uh, and trans people and gay people and basically the minorities, that women and minorities that have been subjected to the most censure and the most obstacles and just that have had to really fight to be able to be simply who they are. You know, we're not, you're not even fighting to be something that's harming other people. You're just fighting to be to just be. But that fight, I think, has made them more empathetic, more, um, I mean, again, I don't mean to generalize, but I would say by and large, like I see these groups as the beacons of change, you know, um, already 377 has finally been repealed. I think that we're probably uh, seeing more and more women who are financially independent and so can delay marriage and childbirth or choose never to participate in those institutions. And if that's going to change the social fabric, right? They're more openly trans people. I mean, I think that uh, the whole LGBT community and anybody who was outside of the cis-hetero, same class, same religion, same everything, had to kind of operate in the shadows and had to lead a double life. And we're seeing on social media so many voices. Or, I mean, I wish there were more and more and more, but more than before. You know, so many voices out of South Asia that are being who they want to be and breaking those glass ceilings so more young people can can just be themselves and be out and proud and um, talking about all the, you know, I feel like 20 years ago we weren't, I'd never heard of dysphoria growing up and I feel like my sister who's 14 years younger than me knows this term, you know, I maybe didn't know what asexual or what, I mean, any number of terms in this arena meant that are now pretty um, common knowledge yeah. to young teenagers today yeah. and I see that as great uh, progress absolutely you know if you don't even have the words to describe what you're feeling it makes it seem even more sort of like you're maybe doing yeah. something wrong has the work that you do changed you in any way how's that has that changed you and affected you in any way I think it has I think that actually I am constantly um learn I mean I think when you look back, when I look at some of my earlier videos or some of the choices I made in my own life before to now, I think it's been such a um, positive evolution in my own. I mean, I don't think when I started my channel, I could have talked about my vibrator or my clarity. I would, I would have been too shy to, you know, I started talking about sort of more easy to talk about topics what were you like talking relationship about? issues or, you know, um, heartbreak, infidelity uh, or, or menstrual, PCOS. I mean, a very, I, I try and encompass a rather broad range of topics within the arena of love, sex, relationships, the body. But I talk about those less overtly sexual topics, you know, because you are afraid of judgment. I mean, I would be lying if I said I'm so evolved that I don't care at all what people think. I care less than I did before. And every day I care a little less, but I still care. And I feel like um, just doing this work and hearing back from people and recognizing the need for this work and getting comfortable in my own skin. I mean, I'm 30 now. I was like 20, 
something when I started. I feel so much more um, in sort of comfortable in my own skin as a woman as well. And I think I was, I'm a chronic people pleaser and the fear of not being liked and things like that can be, it can of be um, of course, we're a whole human. new thing when you're starting on social media, you know, there's literally a like button. And so I think as soon as you're able to distance yourself from these ideas of like the numbers and the, you know, it's, it, uh, I'm not doing this because of the follower count or the number of likes or the, and, and, and that became more and more clear to me that, I, that this, this is, my work is just my work and it comes from a place of conviction. And so all of this other stuff really shouldn't get in the way of it. If, if thousands of people think I'm a slut, so be it. Hopefully there are also thousands of people who are benefiting from this work, you know, but it took me a while to get to that place where I realized at some level, as a creator, you should make what you want to make. It's nice to listen to your audience, but you can't let some people who are who who are slut shaming you or judging you or criticizing you stop you from making your art or your or you know or sharing your message. Um, and yeah, that's that's definitely been a, a very positive realization for me, and I couldn't have had it without without creating this. I think so. I'm. I'm Sure, I have benefited too. It's not just a one-way street. Sounds to me almost like you've, from, you know, where you started to where you are now, it's almost like you've found or refined your voice a little bit and become more you, if I've, that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Oh my gosh, you've said it for me. Yeah. I feel so me. Absolutely. That's what comes across, I think, from everything that you've done, all your videos and everything. It is very authentic. Thank Every you. post sort of, you know you know, when I watch you, I know that that's, you really want me to have great sex. <laughs> you know? Yes, I really, I promise you, it comes from a sincere yeah. place. It comes you across. You know, and, it, and, and for, the, for most of my life, and even now, I don't make my money doing this content. I continue to do some more mainstream media work and MC corporate events, and it's less visible work, but it's what pays me my, yeah. my bread and butter yeah. so that I can continue to do this yeah. without having to commercialize it. Nobody's putting a gun to my head and asking me to make this. It is not financially lucrative for me. I'm doing it purely because I believe it needs to be done. I want particularly women to to have great sex, but I want everyone. I want a world where sexual experiences are consensual, safe, and pleasurable. And I want to do whatever I can to help get there. You absolutely are. I mean, I you know, phenomenal, phenomenal work, and I think it's important and it's vital and it's positive, I think, what you do. It's it's incredible. Um, are there any, where can people find you? So I'm at Lisa Mangaldas, L-E-E-Z-A-M-A-N-G-A-L-D-A-S on Instagram. And that's also the name of my YouTube channel. So you can just Google Lisa Mangaldas YouTube and you'll find my channel. And those are the two primary platforms I use, Instagram and YouTube. Lisa, you've absolutely blown me away. I love what you do. Um, you know, you're phenomenal and it makes me so happy and so proud to be sitting here talking to you. Likewise. And I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for having me and for celebrating my work. It means the world. Thank you so much for being on Masala Podcast. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. 
Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis, the studio, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Be sharam, but the me, Gandhi.